Hello, hello, and welcome to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today on the show, we've got a discussion of the new film from Martin Scorsese. It's Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Robert De Niro. Filmmaker Andrew Bocock returns to the show to discuss the film, the book it's based on, and some of the controversy surrounding the production. Don't go anywhere. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to Art House Garage. In just a moment, we're going to discuss the new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. But just before we do, we're going to hear from an Arkansas filmmaker named Reed Cash Carson. His film, Good Gorgeous Hell actually shares a connection with Killers of the Flower Moon, as you'll hear in just a moment. I've really enjoyed lately using the podcast as a way for local filmmakers to get the word out about themselves and their work, and I was thrilled when Reed reached out to me recently about coming on the show. Here is my conversation with filmmaker Reed Cash Carson. Welcome to the podcast, Reed Cash Carson. I love having Arkansas filmmakers like yourself on the show. Uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I'm 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 a big listener and a big fan. So, oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, well, I wonder if you could tell us about yourself and kind of your film work so far, and what sort of film projects you're interested in generally. Yeah. Uh, so I am a Fayetteville, Arkansas native. Um, born in the in the great uh you know washington regional hospital you know (laughs) yeah um and uh lived in fayetteville uh till i was 18 um moved to chicago for film school moved back to fayetteville um during the pandemic and then now i'm residing in la um but yeah i've been i've been making movies my whole life pretty much i wanted to start out being like an animator i was obsessed Mm. with pixar and um you know teen titans and all that stuff and learned how to do animations on my mom's like windows movie maker um and drifted into doing live action stuff and um fell in love with that in high school went to film school for it and um now kind of found a a lane doing music videos and Mm. um you know small kind of narrative stuff like did a lot of sketch comedy stuff in chicago and um, worked with like drag queens in chicago and um yeah and uh shot a commercial this year first commercial i ever did it will never come out because they (laughs) they cut it and i can't say the company but i'm mad at that company (laughs) so (laughs) um i don't know yeah, it really sucks. Let's remember, but I did see on your Instagram some of your music video stuff. I thought that looked really cool. So yeah, nicely done. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm. I'm it's it's a uh, it's something I've been doing since college, and and the music videos have really picked up since I've moved to LA, um, and have found a lot of joy in 
creativity doing that. Um, it's a good, good, feels like I'm stretching my muscles and, you know, building muscles as a filmmaker, the more music videos I do. And, um, but, you know, the main goal is, is to make feature films and, uh, shoot them mostly in Arkansas. That's, that's the dream. Nice. That's the goal. Um, slowly trying to get there, but yeah. I love it. That's really cool. So you had reached out to me uh, and I, I'd heard your name and like seen that your film was playing around for a while, a film yeah. called Good Gorgeous Hell. So I wonder if you could yeah. tell us about that. And there's kind of some news with that film too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good Gorgeous Hell is a short film. It's about 26 minutes long. Um, so it's on the longer side of a short film. Um, but it is a semi-autobiographical look into being a child stuck in the middle of a messy divorce. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I like to say my, sometimes my, my childhood was good. Sometimes it was absolutely gorgeous and sometimes it was hell. So that's mm. kind of the namesake of it all. Um, and yeah, so the Fayetteville Film Festival does something called the Fayetteville Film Prize. Um, they allow filmmakers to, pitch a project and if you win the pitch contest you receive two thousand dollars in funding from uh rock hill studios um they sponsored it at least they sponsored mine i think they still sponsor it i don't know i don't know um i can't speak for them um <laughs> but yeah i was you know down and out sad living back with my mom in 2020 and november 2020 came around and saw that the Fayetteville Film Festival was hosting this, this pitch contest and I had nothing better to do. I was like, whatever, I'll, I'll come up with an idea and I'll pitch it and we'll just see what happens. Um, kind of just barfed this idea out <laughs> onto paper. And um, I was really inspired by uh, Ari Aster, director of oh, Hereditary. Nice. Yeah. Um, and Midsommar and listening to him talk about Midsommar and how, um, Hereditary was a film for him about a curse on his family and Midsommar was his film about a breakup. Uh, and I was like, you know, just like, whoa, that's so cool. He turned his <laughs> tragedy into movies. I want to do something like that. And um, so I I pitched Good Gorgeous Hell initially as like, what if Kramer versus Kramer was directed by David Lynch? And um, <laughs> like, yeah, I can know. totally see that having watched it. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, I think I kind of stepped away from the, the Lynch of it all. Um, there was uh, some shots cut out that, that were definitely more Lynchian mm -hmm. um, that just wasn't working. Um, but yeah, I, I pitched the film. I just, um, when, when, when I was little, uh, I found a, a photograph in my dad's um, home of him with a black eye. Um, and I was like, Dad, what's this? And he was like, oh, I'll tell you when you're older. Um, and I found out later after reading police reports that he had faked a black eye, mm. um, painted it on his eye, and um, took photos of it, sent it to lawyers and the police and all that stuff to try to like forcibly win back custody of me and my sister. Mm. Um, and that fascinated me, you know, just the idea of someone doing that, especially to their own family, um, especially to their children, that just like what makes someone do that. And for a long time, I think I was 
I still do hold some resentment toward him, sure. obviously. Yeah. Um, but this this film was like an exercise of trying to understand that and mm. reach some sort of empathy, um, just some sort of understanding. And I think I don't agree with his actions and with the character's actions in the film, but there is something that unlocked for me of like, oh, I do kind of feel for him in a weird, mm. twisted way. I, I kind of can see where he um, is coming from in a way. Yeah. And um, so it was a very cathartic film to make. Um, we won the, the pitch prize and um, won the $2,000. And I think started production in June, 2021. Um, me and my co-producer, Inosa Ogbede, who's also plays the bartender Stevie in the film. Mm. Um, we worked together to raise more money, um, brought in a cast and crew, um, beautiful cast from Arkansas and a crew from Chicago and St. Louis and uh, Kansas and LA, um, Little Rock, Fayetteville, um, and shot for five days around Fayetteville. Uh, best production I've ever been a part of and best best crew best cast i've ever worked with um and so we premiered good gorgeous hell at the uh 2021 film festival favorite film festival um it premiered on my birthday which was crazy um (laughs) it was a interesting birthday present um and uh it lived on the festival circuit from like November 2021 to November 2022. Um, I think we, I think we're in like eight film festivals or something like that. Um, won some awards, um, got pretty good reception and been kind of sitting on it since November, 2022, trying to find a good route to dis, uh, dis, distribute it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we're, we're trying to submit to some other places and that wasn't working out. So, you know, a couple weeks ago, like a month ago, I was like, whatever, fine. I'm just going to put it on Vimeo. Here it is world. (laughs) Yeah. You can have it now. I'm tired of sitting on it. Um, so yeah, now it's living on Vimeo, um, for everyone to watch and see and, um, forever, you know, disappear into the world of the internet. So, you know, (laughs) yeah, well, it's fascinating to hear some of the, you know, the creative, decision behind making it you know watching it i thought i wonder it's such a specific story that i was like i wonder if there's some part of this that's autobiographical or inspired by something that either story you'd heard or something but yeah it is really interesting to think about um because it's also you know the the father character is the main character and so movie viewers are used to empathizing with that main character and then you pretty quickly realize oh maybe he's not the you know the good guy in the story or whatever um so yeah it's really i think an interesting angle into the story that uh kind of knocks you off your feet as a viewer in a good way um as you're watching it so yeah i really appreciated it and thought it was uh because it felt so personal um i thought the emotionality of it really worked and so yeah i thank you thank you for sharing with me and now now with the world. So I encourage everyone to check it out. I'll link to that in the show notes here, but yeah. And so later in this episode, we're going to be talking uh, with another filmmaker about the new Martin Scorsese film, killers of the flower moon, but Mm -hmm. good gorgeous hell actually has a connection to that film, right? 
Yeah, you know, Good Gorgeous Tale would make a great double feature with Killers of the Flower Moon. It's uh, we're 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 calling it the Mark Lennon Smith double feature. Um, if you're and local to Arkansas, I feel like you probably know who Mark Lennon Smith is, especially if you're in Northwest Arkansas. Um, uh, Mark is the um, person behind the Actors Casting Agency. Uh, he cast Good Gorgeous Hell and also plays Mr. Brenner, the um, oh, okay. guidance counselor. Um, and uh, on top of that, Mark is like kind of the reason I am who I am today. He runs Arts Life Theater in Fayetteville, um, which is a children's youth theater. And uh, that's where I got started, like acting um, and eventually writing, because Mark pretty much taught me how to write scripts. Um, mm, he's a great wow. writer. Um, so I love that man. Um, he is a crazy man, but I love him to <laughs> death. Um, and he just puts so much like good into the world that um, I think it finally karma came back to him and he got cast in the new Martin Scorsese movie as uh, President Calvin Coolidge. Um, there's a great That's shot. Right. Of, That's right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there's a like, great shot. <laughs> you know, it's got a great shot at the back of his head. You know, if you, if you <laughs> love looking at hair back there, that's, that's Mark. Um, he's, they also got a great shot of him with like a really, I was listening to um, Scorsese talk about the filming of that scene. Hmm. They like found a really old, like uh, I think eight millimeter camera from like 1918 or something like that to okay. film that scene. So Mark like walks across the scene um and uh, meets uh, Lily Gladstone um, as she's coming to like beg for Washington to come do something to stop these um, heinous killings uh, in Fairfax, Oklahoma. Um, and yeah, Mark is a, a great man, a great staple of Northwest Arkansas. And um, definitely as I was watching the film and Burbank, California, just started crying a little bit. I was like, "Oh my god, that's 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 Mark." And um, he has like one line, and the line got a big laugh from the from the LA crowd. So it just was like, "Yeah, that's 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 uh that's my Mark." Um, but yeah, he's a pivotal part of Good Gorgeous Hell, and um, really, I I a, a joy to work with as as an actor and. Um, as a casting director too, he's, he's responsible for finding, um, uh, the actor who plays Reese, the little boy, Joe Walker. Um, Mark, Mark was like, here, this kid, use him. And the film would not be the film without Joe Walker. Um, so very thankful to Mark and thankful to, um, Scorsese for <laughs> looking at a, you know, if you look at a picture of Calvin Coolidge and you look at a picture of Mark, it's like uncanny, you know? Um, it's wild. Yeah. So if, if you have four hours free of your day, you know, go go watch <laughs> Killers and then watch Good Gorgeous Hell afterward on Vimeo. There you go. Well, yes, yeah. again, I will link to that in the show notes and uh, yeah, perfect tie-in for this episode. Uh, thank you so much, Reed, for coming on the show and, and talking to us today. So nice to meet you and yeah. uh, look forward to everything you do in the future. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and um, yeah, big, big fan of the show and love what you're doing and love that you're, you know, a, a critical voice for the Arkansas Mass. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Oh, cool. Very, very thank cool. you so much. I appreciate that. That's really kind. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you back again sometime for some more movie talk. And uh, until then, we'll say bye-bye for now. All right. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks so much to Reed for coming on the show. I encourage you to check out his film, Good Gorgeous Hell, which is linked in the show notes. And if you're an Arkansas filmmaker with a project to promote, don't hesitate to send me an email or a DM. Links to all that are in the show notes. And now let's turn to today's feature discussion, Killers of the Flower Moon. This is the new film from Martin Scorsese based on the nonfiction book by David Gran, which tells the story of the Osage murders that occurred in Oklahoma in the 1920s and 30s. The film follows Ernest Burkhart, who is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. He moves to town after fighting in World War I to work for his uncle, William King Hale, a prominent rancher in the area. At the time, the Osage people carried a lot of wealth from oil discovered on their land, and this film follows what happens when Ernest meets and marries Molly, an Osage woman played by Lily Gladstone. Joining me today is Andrew Bocock. He's a filmmaker and a friend of mine who is a big Scorsese fan. He's also read the book by David Gran and explains some of the differences between the two, and he also tells us about the film he's been working on, which also has some connections with Killers of the Flower Moon. So now here is the trailer for the film, followed by my discussion with Andrew Bocock. You know, you got you got nice color skin. What color would you say that is? My color. Oh, Sage. They have the worst land possible. But they outsmarted everybody. The land had oil on it. Black gold. Money flows freely here now. I do love that money, sir. (laughs) (laughs) This wealth should come to us. Their time is over. It's just going to be another tragedy. When this money started coming, we should have known it came with something else. They're like buzzards circling our people. We're still warriors. I ought to kill these white men who killed my family. I need you here. got to take back control of your home. I was uh, sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. See what about them? See who's doing it. Welcome back to the podcast, Andrew Bocock. How are you today? Doing pretty well. How about you? Doing very well. Uh, Busy time. For all of us, I know, but I'm really excited yeah. to talk about this movie today and excited to have you back on the show. I haven't talked to you in way too long, I think. Yeah, but, it's, been, um, it's been a while. Uh, and speaking of which, I know you have some stuff you've been working on movie-wise that you might have some stuff to share about. What's going on? Sure. Uh, yeah. So I I talked about this a little bit the last time I was on, I believe, earlier yeah. this year, but I've been editing uh, this film, Wildfire, which is finally about to have its premiere next week at the Lone Star Festival in Fort Worth. Next uh, Thursday night, I believe, uh, November 2nd. So I'm we're in the final stages of delivering the final cut for that. It's exciting, but it's also kind of stressful having to get all these pieces 
clicked together at the last minute. And for those who don't know, this is uh, supposed to be Anne Heche's basically her final uh, mm-hmm. film performance. So it's c- kind of a big deal, sadly, because of that. But the the star is Chevelle Shepard. Uh, she won The Voice a few years ago. The movie itself. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, the movie itself is based on a famous country song from the 1970s by Michael Martin Murphy called Wildfire. And the, the plot is heavily influenced by it. And it's a nice little family film. Um, I, you know, this is not necessarily my go-to genre, but, <laughs> you know, working on this film, I, I've grown to really love it myself. And I, I think that uh, a lot of audiences are going to really enjoy it. So I'm proud of what we've done with it. It's been a long road. It has a whole, uh, try. Uh, what do you call it? It has a troubled past, so to speak, yeah. because they started shooting before COVID, had to shut down for a while, mm-hmm. came back a couple years later, had to commence shooting some, as we know, sadly, an actor died. Some people lost weight. Some people, you know, don't look the same when they're reshooting. So there's little mm-hmm. continuity things that you have to try to work around. And um, Makes your job as an editor incredibly hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it does. But you know what? I'm, gl- I'm glad it. With I'm actually pretty happy with what we've done with it. And movie making is all about problem solving, you know, especially low budget stuff. Uh, you know, if you're, as we're about to talk about Scorsese, yeah. you have a lot more, I, I don't want to say freedom because even Scorsese himself has limitations for what can be done. But when you have millions and millions of dollars of a budget, you have more margin of error, I should say, on yeah. certain yeah 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 so but yeah um i'm actually gonna share about this a little bit there is actually a bit of a connection between wildfire and killers of the flower i was gonna ask about that yeah so yeah i I guess i'll just kind of go into that a little bit right now um so eric parkinson who's the writer director of of wildfire he was actually initially he started uh acting a few years ago himself and he ended up in working on Killers of the Flower Moon, he was going to be an extra, and then actually Scorsese bumped him up to a speaking role uh, as Marshall in the film. But oh, as I, as we both found out this last week, all of his scenes got cut. Oh, no. <laughs> so uh, it's already like, what, a four-hour movie, and yet mm-hmm. there's still all this extra material. And, and then I, I was joking with Eric the other day on the phone. I was like, you know what? Maybe uh, you'll make it into the director's cut. And then I thought back and I was like, actually, no, because Scorsese doesn't believe in director's cuts. Yeah. So whatever ends up out and out in the world is the work of art that he has allowed to end up there and he lets it be and he moves on. So I can't imagine a longer cut too, you know, know. (laughs) but I wonder like, does he ever have deleted scenes or anything on the Blu-rays? I haven't looked into that I sort of thing, I guess. Oh, so, but that's a good question because I don't recall uh looking into that myself in the past. So <laughs> well that's really cool though. Yeah. Wow. Well I'm super excited for Wildfire and uh, I know you've been working on it forever. I hope I get to see it before too long. Um and I I think I'd forgotten that it's based on a country song. My yeah wife grew up with a lot of country music so she probably knows and would appreciate that aspect of it but i think it'd be fun just to even watch and like watch for the editing like yeah she would you know she she probably would know it i mean i guess i i personally am not a country music fan so it was not on my radar Mm -hmm. i mean i like i I don't know if you consider it country or americana or whatever i'm into johnny cash and you know stuff like that but um i wasn't familiar with michael martin murphy's music he's also an actor in the film as well 
Um, and he's, he's been very creatively involved in the process with the film. Oh. Um, but I would say the biggest connection to Killers of the Flower Moon is Kara Jade Myers, who plays the supporting role in Killers of the Flower Moon, Anna. Um, she also plays oh. a role in, in Wildfire. Yeah. So she's in that. And I've also worked with a few other actors that are friends of mine when I was staying in Arkansas, because a lot of Arkansas crew was involved in Northwest Arkansas, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Landon Smith, a friend of mine who does uh, casting for a lot of Arkansas, he plays Calvin Coolidge, the president, who you see oh, for... Uh, yeah. A short little scene. You mostly see the back of his head, mm. but uh, but I was looking out for that, and I was like, "Hey, That's there's cool. Mark." And also another guy I've worked with on another film by Eric, uh, "Last Days of Bell Star," which is still kind of in the middle of production. Um, this this guy who's a really great actor named Samuel French, he plays a uh, agent C.J. Rod- Robinson, <clears throat> and um, I was actually surprised at how big of a role he had in this film. I mean, most of the FBI, as we know, comes in in the latter third act but uh he had quite a lot of scenes so i was like way to go samuel yeah that's really cool lots of arkansas connections that's great wow that's really i mean speaking of country music a handful of country music singers are in this uh jason isbell i think is incredible in this movie we can talk about that too but that's not an arkansas thing but just uh, on the country side of things but wow so yeah i love hearing all those connections to your work and to arkansas and everything um I guess let's talk about the movie and maybe first about Scorsese. So obviously an incredibly huge body of work. Uh, how many of his, I am not a completist of him. I've seen most of the major films, but um, have you seen like all or most or some of his films? Uh, you know, I think I have seen, there's maybe two or three of his features that I can think of that I have not seen yet. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm a huge close. fan. I've seen the, the vast majority of his films. I, I should say the vast majority of his narrative films. I mm-hmm. sadly and frustratingly with myself, I still haven't seen any of his documentary work. A lot of the uh, the rock music docs he did back yeah. in the day. I think The Last Waltz is coming back to theaters. I saw they played a yeah. little promo ahead of Flower Moon. Uh, so that's yeah. pretty cool. I've never seen that either. And I've been wanting to. Yeah, I, re- I really want to dig into that stuff too. Um, so. I'm a huge fan of his his work in general across the board. Been a bit, big fan for many years since my teenage years. I would say what's remarkable about Scorsese is he's, in my opinion, one of the few new Hollywood era filmmakers that has been remarkably consistent. And he's ar- arguably gotten better in his old age. He's always about challenging himself and he's always about learning and pushing himself artistically, Mm -hmm. creatively, and otherwise. And I think that that really reflects uh, within his work throughout the years. And I mean, just as as a point of comparison, when you look back to the 1970s, all of these classics in the new Hollywood era, I mean, nowadays, who gets excited about a new Francis Ford Coppola movie? Not not a lot of people. Of course, you'll have the cinephiles who are mm-hmm. some of some of the purists who will be like, oh, my God, I'm excited. Are you really, though? I mean, he hasn't struck gold in decades. I can't think of the last good Francis Ford Coppola film. That's a very good point. To be honest. And I mean, <laughs> I've seen a few of the things he's done in recent years, but but yeah. Anyways, I, I won't yeah, go on. Scorsese, I mean, there's not a lot of directors that can draw on a crowd just on their name. Uh, and I think he's one of the ones that yeah. 
especially that's been working that long. Uh, I mean, they like Chris Nolan, like some of those, but they're more modern people. Um, So yeah, that is, that is pretty remarkable. Um, And yeah, as far as like looking at his recent work, I think the Irishman is one of his best things he's ever done. And like, again, that just his most recent one. Um, But yeah, I would agree. I, I, I'm not as close to being a completist as you are. Um, I could pull up the filmography and say, but I'm, I, I know I have a few major blind spots, but I've seen most of the major ones. Um, and yeah, just absolutely an appreciator and big fan and uh, have been really excited for this film because of its subject matter and all of that. Yeah. Um, and go ahead. Were you going to say something? Oh, sorry. I was going to say it's kind of a film bro. It's become kind of a film bro thing to say, mm-hmm. but taxi drivers, you know, in my all time yeah. 50 best films, <laughs> uh, but I, I've loved nearly everything he's done. I mean, raging bull, Goodfellas, King of comedy, even uh, the one that I most recently saw that I'd never seen before is the age of innocence, mm, I which I think I saw that about a year ago. And that was like the, I think when that came out in the early nineties, that was considered a massive departure for him. It was like yeah. Scorsese is doing this PG rated period piece. Like, mm. what's, what's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> but it's one of his, I think it's probably in his top 10, um, at least top 10. I can't even think of how many films he did off the top of my head, but I really love most of, most of his films. I, I think that the first one I remember actually seeing was the aviator in theaters only because my mm. parents dragged me to see it. Uh, it, basically going, oh, it's a movie about Howard Hughes and they love yeah. quote-unquote true stories and blah, blah, blah. So I remember going to see that and just being blown away at the film technique, uh, mm-hmm. even as a, a teenager and going like, man, this is really well done. And yeah. uh, ever since, I think that what Scorsese's done in the 21st century is just amazing because I, I feel like he's made almost like masterpiece after masterpiece. (laughs) I really love pretty much everything he's done this century. It's funny you brought up the Irishman though, because Mm -hmm. that's the one I haven't, that hasn't really connected with me as deeply as some of the other ones. I I liked it and I rewatched it and I appreciated it more, but it didn't really, um, it did feel a little bit more long-winded than, in my mind, it needed, it didn't feel as tight to me as, as a lot of his other work, but I, I do still really like it a lot. And, and I feel like it, it will grow on me more over time, but that's just, yeah, that's one of the ones for me that hasn't, hasn't hit me as hard underneath yet, but it is also like this. I do appreciate that. It's sort of a meditation on his body of work in a way too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of puts an an interesting pin in his like gangster films. Um, I mean, I love what Al Pacino's doing in that movie. But yeah, I mean, even just like the little details about when you meet a new character, it tells you when they die, like immediately, right. like the text, like that. Just like kind of reflecting on all the gangster movies he's made. I, th- I thought that was a really interesting way to do it. But yeah, yeah. I was like, I think the first one I ever saw was probably Shutter Island. I think I saw Taxi Driver. And then the first one I saw in the theater was Shutter Island. I'm looking at his filmography oh, yeah. now. You know, Shutter Island, I think, is crazy underrated. I remember people complaining about it when it came out. Like, oh, I saw the twist ending coming mm-hmm. a mile away. I was like, that movie is not about the twist ending. Yeah. Like, it's not. He doesn't pull a Shyamalan and try to go like, whoa, guys, yeah, guess yeah, what? It was in his head the whole time. <laughs> like, it, it's so much more than that. Like, when you mm-hmm. rewatch it, it really is 
this really fascinating meditation on trauma and mm. how it rewires the brain. Um, yeah, and I I, see it again, but yeah, it's so rewatchable. It is so rewatchable. Like there, there's little tiny details that are Easter eggs that if, you know, if you're not looking for them, you may not notice, but mm. Scorsese is such a genius in planting these little details throughout that really, I think people start to pick up on and repeat viewings. Yeah. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I remember like that when you see the scene of like the trauma that happened to him, like just being so devastated by that the first time I saw it. Yeah. It's so hard to watch. But yeah, I think I was in I was in uh, studying abroad in England actually, and I watched Taxi Driver in like a film appreciation class there and thought it was so incredible and like learning the behind the scenes about uh like the film prints were lost for that final action scene and like all the the trivia around it and all of that and of course the iconic lines from it and everything i was like this is really cool and, uh, anyway so yeah. yes i guess that's when i first encountered scorsese um well let's talk about so you have read the book killers of the flower moon yeah so i thought we might first uh, give her a little reaction to the film and then maybe talk about, I have not read the book, but hear your take on like what's different and how you feel the adaptation is. Right. So first the movie itself, uh, very open into question, but what did you think about Killers of the Flower Moon, the film? I really loved it. I think that it goes in step with what I said before, that he has been stepping up his game this whole century in his old age. I, I think that this film is a continuation of Scorsese growing. Mm. Now, is it perfect? Are there quote unquote problematic things about it? I think very much there are some valid things to call into question, which I think we can talk about. Yeah. But Overall, I would say that since Gangs of New York, you know, earlier 20 years ago, whenever that film came out, he hasn't really made a misstep with his films. He, as, as an artist, I think he's top notch. This film continues that. I think he's, he's brilliant at telling a really good story and still being surprising in one sense or another. Mm -hmm. It's... This is a, I think this film's kind of a masterpiece on multiple levels. It's a great true crime film. It yeah. also fits within the oeuvre, oeuvre, how do you say that? Oeuvre? oeuvre <laughs> I think oeuvre, that's right. Oeuvre. Whatever. Oeuvre of his gangster films. Mm -hmm. Because it, these guys are freaking gangsters. Like, I mean, yeah, like the, the structure of the movie is so familiar. Crime, 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 crime. And then consequences. Yeah. Like we've seen that with Goodfellas and Casino and all the. the yeah. And, and it's funny because he repeats that structure quote unquote but every time it's still different like it's still yeah. the thematically it's still it's not just rehashing the same stuff over and over mm -hmm. it's there's always i think something profoundly unique about each one of his films in that sense mm -hmm. um i i think that he he knows he's smart enough to know to not just rehash the same formula you know yeah, one right. after the other 
it's also a great historical epic and it's a bit of history that almost nobody seems to talk about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, I mean, I know we're going to talk about the book in a bit here, but the thing about it is when I first started reading this book, I was just like, how, how have I never learned about this? It's the same mm-hmm. reaction I had to when I watched the Watchmen uh, HBO series yeah. and learned about the Tulsa massacre I was like, Which I was going to say, like, I think it's genius that he brings that up in early yeah. in the film, too. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and exactly. And that's that's happening around the same time, around the same place, too. It's all this crap going down in Oklahoma in the early 1900s, which learning about it nowadays is like, if you learn about it and you're honest with yourself and the history of the United States, mm-hmm. it, it, it's so blatantly, I mean... I'm sorry. I'm just going to get political here, no, but yeah, it's the sure. way it's the way I got to be. <laughs> the the systemic racism and all mm-hmm. of the stuff that is built into things that we are just now it seems having a reckoning with mm-hmm. all of that stuff has been so present and yet so repressed within our mm-hmm. own history. Mm-hmm. Like <clears throat> I, I think that it's a, particularly so for me growing up. I, I grew up going to a Christian school and all of the curriculum was like a Becca, which is mm. the most whitewashed, yeah, whitewashed like, type of Selective. history. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, there's even jokes, memes about it where like people are like, Oh yeah, look at this picture of the Pharaoh. And it's, it's a blue eyed white guy. And I was like, <laughs> I remember that picture in my book from oh my grade. Gosh, I've seen that meme. That's hilarious. That was in my school book. Like that's the wow. school books that I had. It's just, so it's even more that's shocking. Funny. After college, I almost took a teaching job at a very small private school because I needed any job, but I couldn't do it. And I was looking at the curriculum and it was a Becca and it was, I was going to be teaching English, but it was like, so I was taking offense at what they were, the way they were treating like transcendentalism is of the devil. It's like, I don't think I can teach this anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. No, yeah. I mean, so anyways, that that's kind of a sidestep tangent a little bit into the, just the history of it, but it's this. So when you think about, the like Native American stereotype history of indigenous people in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think that it's very common to just have this image of these people were, even if you're a quote liberal minded or progressive, whatever, mm-hmm. these people were a massacred people group who were relegated to these reservations and writ large do not have any wealth like Mm -hmm. everything was taken from them and so they have to run casinos or whatever else to just get by Mm -hmm. you know so there's not this image of like the wealthy native american same with the black folks Mm -hmm. in in the tulsa massacre right like there was this was a thriving community back then which due to white supremacy and all the stuff related to that just completely gets upended And, um, that's a very, this is a very specific thing where they were fortunate enough to strike oil on, on that ground and get the riches from that. But as we know, by watching this film by itself, it, um, there's just a seditious type of, 
it, it, just a seditious attitude mm-hmm. by the people who feel like they they have a claim to this more so because they oh well, we've helped these people we you know it it, it is owed yeah. to us to partake in some of this wealth so to speak that's yeah. sort of a, a broad attitude that that seems I, to be I think that's one of the one of the most interesting things about it is that Robert De Niro character who is like you know, a friend of the Osage and even speaks highly of them as a people. And when we first meet him and stuff, but then obviously he's the villain of the whole thing. But yeah, I think speaking of the history stuff, I think it's genius the way um, there is like some of it. I mean, I actually don't know the production stuff of this, like the footage that we see that appears to be uh, like primary document type footage, whether that's recreated or not, but then also seeing the photos that like we see the photographer taking their photos and then we see like, Oh, I've seen photos that look like this, these like old time looking pictures. And then like seeing the vibrant life around those was, I think really powerful. um, Yeah. Way to to handle that. Uh, Yeah. I thought the historical stuff in this was really interesting. And yeah, we could talk about, when we talk about the ending, I think I want to talk about like the perspective controversy around all this. And uh, I have a couple other voices that I want to read little snippets of kind of, weighing yeah. in on that but i'm pretty um, sure we both have some of the same things we're going to overlap on here yeah. <laughs> i can just yes. predict we'll so, see we'll see yeah. um well yeah what else about the film uh speaking of performances i i, I mean everyone is saying this so it's not original but lily gladstone is the mvp she's so so good in this and yeah i think um Oh, one other thing I was going to say, like speak to what you were talking about with the the wealth of these people, which again, yeah, I didn't even know that like piece of history at all. And, but it's it's so jarring and interesting to see um, we see the white people like trying to sell their wares on the side of the road, like it's just the inverse of what we've come to expect from history. Like, and any time that has happened, white people have destroyed it, um, yeah. as you're saying. Yeah, so just a really fascinating. Uh, to, to live in this time period for a couple hours and and see what it was like. Um, yeah, Lily Gladstone is so incredible, I think, and, and her performance is like holding so much under the surface and um, her accent, I think, is is incredible too and kind of surprising when you first hear her voice and yeah. just realize all these Osage people have like Southern Oklahoma accents. Um, yeah. You know, that's really funny, too. I, I want to interrupt you a little bit because yeah. I'm working on another film that's in Cherokee. Um, oh, yeah, you're talking about that. It's a short film called uh, Siren of the Wood, and it's all spoken in the original Cherokee. But what's interesting about it is the uh, actors, a lot of the actors who are starring in it don't don't speak the Cherokee language well mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. So they had to have a dialogue coach uh, around, and I when I was <clears throat> working on the subtitles and stuff for the film, so it was obviously I don't speak Cherokee. I, I, I had a, um, a person who was, who's a part of, um, of the production who was the dialogue coach. And I, I talked to her and she has the thickest Southern accent I've ever mm-hmm. heard. It just surprised the heck out of me on the phone Yeah, well. because I, I was expecting like a more, again, the stereotype of a, a native, like mm-hmm. having a deep, very monotone, maybe mm-hmm. uh, singular type of accident accent that you associate with indigenous people. Right. But the, these, a lot of these people still grow up around intermixed. And even as you see in the movie, 
intermixed with white people and other cultures mm -hmm. starting to be in a melting pot back then, but especially nowadays, they still live out in the community and are influenced by the dialects yeah. of the time and the place. So it's just, it was just jarring to me to, to hear this woman who speaks fluent Cherokee. But when I ask her, is this the right way to interpret this? Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. I'm like, wow. Okay. So, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So that is, it's just a little jarring when you kind of settle into that. I'm like, oh, of course, this is the accents they would have had, probably. Um, and yeah. And Lily Gladstone is uh, throughout the film. And yeah, again, we'll talk about like, does she have uh, enough screen time compared to Leo and uh, De Niro and all of that? But, um, yeah, I was going to say, if, we, if we're going to start stepping into this area, my, <laughs> while I was watching the film, the one critique I started to feel about halfway through, and this is before, when I saw this film, this is before any quote-unquote controversy was starting to creep mm -hmm. up. So I was watching it and I was like, this is very powerful. These native performances are excellent. The story, having read the book and knowing the sort of oscillating perspectives that we're mm -hmm. going to be examining, and also knowing that Scorsese changed his POV while making the film because he was collaborating with the Osage people and wanting to tell uh, this story in its most authentic way, right? And this is, again, in my opinion, part of his growth and his authenticity as a filmmaker and a storyteller. Um, but still, still my one critique while watching the film was it did feel like a white man telling the Osage story. Yeah. Um, it did seem like it was done with nuance, grace, respect, depth. It was showing a story about terrible people who tried to justify their own evils but who also seemed to show an ironic sort of level of empathy and codified mm -hmm. charity in a sense. And that sort of leans into the gangster realm of Scorsese's themes that, you know, has kind of weaved through. And, and one thing I've heard about him in the past, <clears throat> a way that somebody has expressed his approach to characters that Scorsese doesn't judge his characters. Mm -hmm. He allows them to be judged, but he doesn't judge them per se. Yeah. That being said, I think that there are some valid critiques in that realm, but I also do think the film itself is a powerful tale that itself critiques white saviorism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's sort of like a both and situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that the big controversy that, which we'll probably touch on now is the, uh, the indigenous actor, Devery Jacobs had a long tweet thread. Um, expressing her sort of disdain for the movie um, as a native uh, or indigenous person. Um, and I think that it, it made me have to have to re-examine my own thoughts and feelings about it, but also had to like take it with a grain of salt, right? Because one person having a certain perspective is not them speaking for everybody. I think they would even argue that themselves, mm -hmm. right? Because there's plenty of Osage people I know who love the film, who were involved in the film, who had a big hand creatively in it. But that you're, on one hand, I mean, just speaking bluntly, you're, you're not going to please everybody in one sense, mm -hmm. but are some of these just philosophically are some of these critiques valid in this is a white man telling a native story. Should that be allowed? 
what are the parameters and so on. So that's Scorsese, like I said, worked so closely with the Osage people in making this. He shifted his focus in the making of it. So like, for example, the source material does a lot of footwork in showing how this is one of the big first big FBI cases. I think that's one of the, the subtitle of the original book, right? The birth of the FBI or something like that in David Grant's book. Mm-hmm. Um, but Scorsese really wanted to focus on the native people's plight. I guess the question is, did he focus enough and did he do so in the right way? Yeah, yeah. So I I will pose that question to you. Yeah, yeah and I think um, I certainly don't have an answer to that question either. I think you're right that, um, yeah, you're quote unquote not going to please everybody, but it also is like to have a more fully immersive Osage story, we probably need an Osage filmmaker like behind the camera. And right. unfortunately the world we live in is that is a major studio going to ever green like that. So there's that level of the business side of it. There's also, um, again, like he really made this into like a Scorsese feeling story with the way that he's um, depicting the, you know, the villains, the, the people who are, the killers, the the criminals in this film, um, like that's the kind of story he tells really well. Um, I did see a couple of so yeah, like I I did see that that thread, and I've seen other Osage people uh, unhappy with how how much whether screen time or focus on um, the white characters there is in this film. I did see another Osage person on the other side of it, and I'll link to this in uh, the show notes that I thought was interesting. Um, they have a long letterbox thing that they put on Twitter as well. Uh, I'm trying to find the, the actual piece, but they basically, um, they really appreciated the film. Their name is Joel on Twitter. Uh, I don't know their last name. Actually, I'll find that and put that in the show notes as well. But essentially there's an, another book about this, um, time period. Uh, and kind of their argument was, uh, this film can be what it is and we appreciate what it is, but maybe down the line we can get an Osage filmmaker to, to adapt this. So here's the quote is I hope that as more and more indigenous filmmakers are given opportunities and Osage will have the opportunity to adapt Charles H. Redcorn's novel, a pipe for February. This novel tells the story of the reign of terror from the perspective of someone that lived through it. And I think it serves as a necessary companion to the more journalistic killers of the flower moon. So that that was an interesting um, addition to the conversation to say like, uh, this doesn't have to be the only movie and shouldn't be the only, you know, film about this. Right. Um, and there's always room for more voices. And um, here's the Scorsese version. Of course, he's a big name. They can get the funding. They can make this huge epic. Um, but hopefully down the road that will not. Yeah. He'll and not I, be the only one. But yeah, go ahead. Of course. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the biggest piece of let me just say, like, because I should have probably said this a little bit more clearly and loudly up front is that, I mean, we're two white dudes. I mean, I'm yes. assuming you don't have an indigenous background. <laughs> I don't. And I meant to ask you that ahead of time yeah. to make sure yeah. that was true of you too. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm as, as white as they come. And like all of our words with grains of white. So salt. yeah, I mean, our voices on the subject, grain of salt. I think that, yeah, because I mean, I think there's people who, for example, wouldn't even care to listen to our opinion just because yeah. our background doesn't connect with that culture, which is fine. Completely but, brutal. So I think that, yeah, I think that, like I said earlier, native folks 
again, don't have a monolithic voice on this. I think that there's valid criticism. I think there's also, there's, there's validity on both sides of this. I hate to just be two sides on it, but I, I do, I actually do want to quote a bit of the thread from Devery Jacobs, because sure. I want to make sure that voice is like. Valid. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I also don't want it to be like, Oh, I found an Osage person who likes the movie. So now I can, you know, yeah. that's my thing. I, that's not my intention at all, but just because there are uh, like what you're going to read. I've heard a lot of that, but there are, are things on all sides of this. And I just wanted to bring in. Yeah. Yeah. So her, I, I tried to get as much of her tweet thread, Twitter thread. I don't know how you say it. How mu- as much of the thread as I could kind of pulled in and I, I'm, I'm not on ever since Elon took over. I'm not yeah. a part of that whole thing anymore. So I had to just take bits and pieces that are quoted. I think this is the majority of it, but I'm just going to try to read it out because I want to, sure. I just want to try to like sit with it and at least respond to pieces of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have thoughts. I have strong feelings in all caps. This film was painful, grueling, unre- unrelenting, and unnecessarily graphic. Being native, I watch, watching this movie was fucking hellfire. Imagine the worst atrocities committed against your ancestors then having to sit through a movie explicitly filled with, with them, with the only respite being 30-minute long scenes of murderous white guys talking about slash planning the killings. I believe that by showing more Native murdered women on screen, it normalizes the violence committed against us and further dehumanizes our people. To top it off, to see the way that film, to to see the way that film nerds are celebrating and eating this shit up, it makes my stomach hurt. I can't believe it needs to be said, but indigenous people exist beyond our grief, trauma, and atrocities. Our pride for being native, our cultures, our languages, joy and love are way more interesting and humanizing than showing the horrors white men inflicted on us. It must be noted that Lily Gladstone is an absolute legend and carried Molly with tremendous grace. All the incredible indigenous actors were the only redeeming factors of this film. Give Lily her goddamn Oscar. But while all the performances were strong, if you look proportionally, each of the Osage characters felt painfully underwritten while the white men were given way more courtesy and depth. For the Osage communities involved in creating this film, I can imagine how cathartic it is to have these stories and histories finally acknowledged, especially on such prestigious platform like this film. There was beautiful work done by so many Wazashi, as I, I don't know if that's how you say it, on this film. But admittedly, I would prefer to see a $200 million movie from an Osage filmmaker telling that history any day of the week. So you already kind of touched on that, that a $200 million movie with an Osage filmmaker, there's just like in in the realm of history, we don't have that because Mm -hmm. there hasn't been an Osage filmmaker who's been lauded in their work since the 1970s working today. And I mean, that's, like it's kind of unfortunate well it is unfortunate just across the board that hollywood just for so many decades has just lacked such diversity and yeah it's not like it's it's just a today problem it's the decades of right things that can't just be suddenly fixed yeah yeah exactly so um i will say that there's a again i think she has a lot of strong points here um as somebody being familiar with Scorsese's work, I mean, he's always going to be talking about violence. He's always, he's always going to have, that's always been a controversy 
in his film filmographies, people have accused him of being yeah. a violent filmmaker. And we glorifying the violence, or are we are we celebrating the toxic masculinity, or are we critiquing it? You know, that's yeah, the, the, a lot of the conversation for years now. Yeah, it, yeah, it, absolutely. I think that what it's it's kind of ironic in a way because um, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but yeah, I remember like for example when what Wolf of Wall Street came out. I mean, people like you, you had, there were all these memes, I think back then, even of, of so-and-so going to see it and missing the whole, or the memes yeah. saying, glorifies this character, misses the entire point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but the way that it's filmed, it's so fun. It's so high energy though, but it's like, mm-hmm. that's what, that's what these type of drug induced high stakes lifestyles, they are thrilling. Like that's otherwise mm-hmm. people wouldn't be doing them <laughs> yeah, i mean it, yeah, it, it, yeah. it's you you have to represent if you're trying to represent pov you have to be authentic about it yeah. but i think that's sort of where the critique ro- rolls into killers of the flower moon is um yeah why why couldn't molly be the protagonist so to speak yeah. right mm-hmm. um i but i think that when we'll get to this and we'll get to the spoilers but i think that by the end of the film that entire final scene is Scorsese implicating himself on this platform. Yeah. And I think that because of that, I'm not going to say it quote unquote excuses things about the film, but I think that he's not there to make the perfect movie that is the end all to be said on this subject. He's making Mm -hmm. a work of art on, on a subject that he cares about, but he, I think he feels only, I would say in his defense to an extent, he only feels qualified, I believe, to represent a certain point of view as a yep. white old man. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is possibly a defense to be said in that sense. Yeah. Of course, you could argue, well, couldn't he use his position to prop up another filmmaker? Well, I, I, in my mind, I almost feel like if you asked him, he would say, I would if I could. <laughs> Yeah. You I know. mean, he does a lot of, uh, you know, world cinema projects to get smaller voices out there as much as he can. So like, I know that he personally does that kind of thing too. Anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I think, uh, it's definitely interesting. It's yeah. Like say he had made it with Molly as a protagonist, then I feel like I would have the same critique and be like, well, why don't we have, especially if it's from a more Osage point of view, we have to have an Osage filmmaker or writer or something um, more than what we have. So, yeah, I guess the question is, should he have made it at all? Um, I think there is value in, I mean, looking at Wall Street or Goodfellas, the way he like finds these subcultures, the way these people behave just depicts it. It's the ultimate like depiction is not uh, endorsement, right? Where he's yeah. going to like get into this very interesting subculture and see how these people are operating. And in this case, it's, look how insidious this systematic racism and genocide is like i i completely hear like we don't need to see brutalized bodies of color on screen like i completely hear that and and agree with that um and at the same time i think there is value in showing these you know bad guys again he doesn't he he's very peculiar the way he doesn't judge his characters um but lets us do that work, uh, lets the audience do that work. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, looking at like Wolf of Wall Street, there are people who can come out and think Jordan Belfort's a great guy, and Jordan Belfort himself thinks the movie makes him look good, right? But yeah. I don't think you. He's can in really, it. He's in it too, he's, right? He's in it. Yeah, yeah he's in it. So like, he thinks it makes him look like a hero, which is mind-boggling. But I don't think you can really do that with this movie. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong, but like, I don't think you can possibly glorify the De Niro character or the Leo character, um, yeah. and then it really is. Uh, showing the insidiousness of what they're doing um so i don't know yeah that and, and, is, but. so on that point what is the insidiousness of what they're doing let's just say okay i mean in the first 10 minutes you some questionable things are said but you could still argue oh are these heroes are these two mm-hmm. white men heroes of this story mm-hmm. um there's there's that throwaway line about money you know and whatnot but it, as money, the, the thing is, money seems like it's the source of all of the things. It, we know it's not the true source, but it, it it's the catalyst mm-hmm. for the terrible things that happen, right? Like if it wasn't for money and wealth and whatever, mm-hmm. you might think, oh, these people are living at perfect peace and respect one another. <laughs> like that, you think that, but there's also... The fact that that dynamic is in play the way that it is, it shows that there is not equality. It shows that there is not humanization of the other, so to speak. Um, even if that person falls in love with yeah. and has a true love for somebody of that, oh, my wife is a native, so mm-hmm. how could I be racist? How could I be this? How could I be that? Right, you know? And yeah, and yeah, it, it even has that character, that side character who is like blatantly, that's all he's after, right? So I think it, it reckons with that a bit too, but yeah, go on. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's sort of the whole thing is we get into the conversation of, oh, I can't be racist because I have a black friend, whatever. Yeah, or I adopted a black baby or like- Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but there's that whole dynamic at play throughout the whole film. And I mean- in in respect to being a good storyteller, I think that Scorsese doesn't doesn't paint a clean arc. He doesn't go, this person was bad and they become good, or this yeah. person was good and they become bad. Like it's a it's very squiggly good. line mm-hmm. that goes throughout it. it yeah, it's like does Leo genuinely love her? Because I mean, De Niro plants that idea in his head in a way, like, oh, uh, you know, they're wealthy and you could marry into that wealth, and then it just like graduate but it, it's not like he like sits him down and is like you need to do this exactly you know so it's interesting that it's uh i i guess it is surprising how deep leo gets into it i, I can't remember his actual name Ernest. um but it's i think there are and the film also doesn't exactly reveal until later in the film like oh yeah he is doing all these terrible things and it kind of lets you uh suspend like not sure exactly what's going on yeah there it, it adds enough like reasonable doubt i guess yeah. to mm-hmm. possibly excuse away some of the things that are happening so to speak yeah. or or even try to justify it and not not in a moral sense but in like a quote logical sense like yeah oh this guy used to be married to your wife so may he steal your inheritance that's not a good reason to kill him but yeah. is it a is it a, a, a motivation beyond just pure uh, racism? <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, you could, you could make these arguments, I guess, mm-hmm. but they're still, 
they're still just trash people at the end of the day. And I mean, that's sort of like, that's what's, if we want to go into the last act spoilers a little bit. Yeah, let's do that. So, okay. Spoiler warning for anyone who hasn't seen it. Let's talk about it. So, um, in that last stretch, you have Ernest Burkhart and he's the, the FBI. When they finally come to investigate, he's sort of losing it. He's losing his cool. Um, they're clearly going to find out that he's been a part of some murders and some other terrible things that have been going on. Now, when he gets a plea deal and he's, you know, there's this back and forth on, that's such a fascinating part of the story. Anyway, go on. Yeah, no, he, is he going to testify De Niro's, um, King, I forget the name of his actual character, but they call him King. Is he going to actually be like, is he going to talk him out of it or is he going to influence him in any significant way? So there is that moral dilemma that Ernest Burkhardt is having in, in, in that whole thing. But the one, this is the, the most interesting point about his character is they, when, his wife starts taking insulin for her diabetes. And when it's a, a new thing, it's an exclusive thing. She's one of five people in the world who has this drug. Um, so now he's slowly poisoning her basically. And this is a woman he loves. And I, I still believed that he loved her at that point. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what's so crazy about it is it's like, you wouldn't do that to somebody you love. But people do terrible things to people that they love. Even if you don't want to call it love, whatever you want to call it, I, I do think that the term love is so complex anyway that it you can't. <laughs> it's hard to quantify in that sense. Sure. But he is harming somebody who he's married to, who he is a partner with, who he seems to care about. Um, and at one you but you see his hesitation you see him take the poison himself at one point um so so again there's these seeds of like is he going to repent and come to jesus and all this kind of yeah, stuff there's this contradiction in, within him that's pretty fascinating and yeah and the, when he does get influenced this way and then back the other way and all of that um i thought that was just really exciting filmmaking really like yeah. i was like what's he gonna do yeah and that, that's sort of what's what's tragic about the whole thing. And I get that if you're a native, an indigenous person watching this, mm-hmm. you're even if if like whatever, you're going to watch it and be like, fuck that guy. I don't care yeah. if, he, mm-hmm. if he's feeling bad, <laughs> yeah. like after everything he's been a part of, yeah. there, there's no I, I have no reason to, to sympathize with them. So I understand mm-hmm. that perspective as well. Um. Now, what what I want to talk about, though, is in the final stretch, first of all, the the way that he will not renounce that last little bit yeah. mm-hmm. of what he was giving her and how he cannot confess to her. Like he says, his soul is clean. He's confessed everything that King has made him do or, mm-hmm. you know, convinced him to do or whatever. But... Molly still knows there's that, that she, she knows, like she just knows there's that last bit that he can't, he can't admit even to himself almost. Yeah. He, he, he's in self-denial for being able to harm the person that he claims to love the most. 
So he he can't confront his own his own moral sickness in the end. Hmm. And I think that that's that's the beginning of that whole point about systemic injustice that Scorsese's trying to get hmm. at here is that like in order to have any progress or or move forward or heal there's the moral sickness inside of us that we have been feeding poison and we have been drinking poison ourselves uh, and we have been harming the people that we love the most even if we claim that we would never harm them right Mm -hmm. there is moral sickness and i think that this this goes into his catholicism right Mm -hmm. is his idea of sin i think is that like this per he's doing this every single day. He's he's introducing poison, whether it's through his words or literal poison to his wife. Mm-hmm. But he is not confronting the evil that he's doing. Like he yeah. to, to him, it's like, well, I gotta do this. Yeah. I mean, the compulsion is that you know he will be safeguarding his money and be able to keep his children and whatever, whatever else may be. But after, even after that becomes no longer a thing, even after he's no longer to poison her, now the poison is more insidious because he can't admit to what he did. Mm -hmm. So the poison is already stuck inside of him, The not, not the literal poison, but you know, the more metaphorical one. Um, so for that, that's part one of, of the um, the reckoning, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then part two of the reckoning, right, is is the finale. Yeah, which feels really jarring when you see it. Um, like we're we're watching a radio pay, play. What the hell? Yeah. What's what's going yeah. on? These people making sound effects and telling this story. Oh, okay, it's a critique of cr- true crime, right? Because we watch these true crime stories. We we are entertained by these stories of horrific traumatic things that happen to people this is a common it's become a more and more common critique of the true crime genre especially in recent years right that we are sort of like titillated and entertained by these stories which frankly is kind of true um and it makes you ask like is there is there an ethical way to do this is there an ethical way to tell this story but that Right now, we're just witnessing it in its most, um, in its least nuanced way. Like, it's just clearly just this, it's a show. We're telling the story, but it's a trend of true crime today, or or the radio drama in this film. Yeah. Yeah, it's like its most, like, base, like, uh, yeah, this is for entertainment. Let's end it. Yeah, I think, like, the radio drama, they have the sound effects, and, like, it's almost cutesy and funny, and, like, yeah when you've just seen the whole thing, it's so horrific to see it made cheapened in that way, I guess. And then you hear the, like the obituary of Molly and all of that. And it's like, Oh my God. Um, and actually I wanted to read uh, our mutual friend, Michael J. Darty, who writes many wonderful things on Facebook. I actually, I uh, texted him this morning to say, can I read this on the podcast? I'm just going to read a section, but, but I thought he summed up like the moment when Scorsese himself shows up on screen. Um, and he just, he, I thought he, wrote this well um it was the nature of the story sure and the cinematic energy brought to bear by all involved but i realized it was scorsese himself 
who made him cry, saying, I won't divulge what happens in the end as the history is available, but what was so overwhelming was Scorsese having the nerve to implicate himself and his art as part of the historical problem with representation. Here is a white director telling a tragic tale of indigenous people. This is not new, and though Scorsese owes no apology for this or any of his work, according to Michael, uh, the great film artist of the past 60 years says that his art is not enough. And it may be even part of the more significant issue of blocking minority voices in Hollywood from telling their stories. So I thought that was summing up in, a, in an interesting way, the, the very contradiction of this film's existence, right? So it's not only we have the contradiction within artists, but it's like, I, I think it's fascinating that I started to hear rumblings of, oh, people are uh, upset that this isn't from a, an indigenous point of view. Um, but that controversy is baked right into the story and he's addressing it. Whether you think that's enough, yeah. your mileage may vary. But I thought it was a really fascinating way to end the story. And um, yeah, the, the Scorsese cameo right there was also shocking uh, when he comes in right at the end. But yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's like sort of like you're implying it's not an excuse. Mm-hmm. But I do think that it is him buttoning the story up and saying that I don't know if this is the right answer, but but I'm hoping we do better just in general. I, I think that that's, you know, as we were saying, implicating himself is saying that I, I want us to do better. I want these other filmmakers, these other people to tell their stories and to support them however he can. But he is this privileged filmmaker who has this reputation yeah. of of doing so many great things in my opinion for cinema and maybe yeah influencing some not so so great things because mm-hmm. he's a human being and people grab on grasp onto the wrong elements yeah. in his stories right but i think that what, what's interesting for me is silence is in my opinion one of his best films mm-hmm. and silence the ending reminded me more of silence than anything else that he's done mm-hmm. And I think it's because there is that that sort of rottenness within the soul, sort of, but it's but it's sort of inversed, right? Because um, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Silence, but at the end of that, once the main character is forced to um, renounce his faith and basically work with the Japanese people to completely like rob any or eradicate any Christian influence that enters Mm -hmm. their country. The very final, final shot of that film is (laughs) what is so fucking Catholic about it is he's doing all of these things. And yet inside he he's holding a a symbol Mm -hmm. in his hand of a cross. So even though he is like burning and he's being burned every, every, everything he confesses professes with his mouth is against this belief system. And yet like this thing that he's holding on to until the very end cannot be like replaced for him. And so it's sort of, it's it's the, the ending of Leo's confession feels like the sort of like rotten doppelganger is like, no, Mm. I'm confessing. I'm I'm professing the sin. My sin is gone. And yet within him, he's grasping this insidious thing that is causing um, the evil all around him, basically. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting reversal that in my mind, I kind of correlated to that ending. 
Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that might be as good a place as any to kind of wrap things up. Do you have any other thoughts on the film before we finish um, out? I, I, all I, all I got to say is I'm very excited to revisit it. Um, hmm. And I'm also excited that, that this film is opening this conversation the way it is. And I think that um, just a couple little factoids I think are interesting real quick. Um, when I went to go see it, I, I go to Alamo draft house and there is yeah. a, what's great about Alamo draft house. And I think I brought this up the last time I was upon on the podcast too, is that they always have a, a personalized pre-show that's different mm-hmm. for every single movie, the half hour before the film starts, the people who curate the films, they, will always bring in old film clips or do little like featurettes on things specific to that film. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was great about, um, I only caught the last tail end of this um, when I got there, but um, they're talking about the, how indigenous peoples have been historically marginalized and especially in the Western genre Mm -hmm. um, in our history but at the tail end of not not the tail end, but near the end, they also go well. Here are some burgeoning Native American voices in cinema who are starting to uh, take foot. So it, it's, I think it's a nice if you you know if you side with say Devery Jacobs on on this whole mm-hmm. subject, right? The the nice counterbalance here, if you go to Alamo Draft House at least, is you get to learn about there's these other burgeoning indigenous filmmakers who you can follow and whose work you should pay attention to. So sadly, I can't remember the names of any of them. Off the <laughs> I was just thinking, head. I'll see if I can find that list or something. And, uh, but yeah, if you can link to like, that, I would, that would be great yeah, because absolutely. I'm, I'm excited to check out, I think one or two of them I had heard of um, a bit, but I'm, I do want to yeah. check out some of these filmmakers um, a lot more, be- especially because there's native filmmakers that I've been working with as well that I have a lot of respect for. So I I think that this is all just a great conversation starter. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. If the existence of this film, no matter how, how you feel about it, if it can hopefully point to some of those other voices, I think that's a a very good thing. So. And I think that that's what Scorsese's whole point really is, is to open the conversation. And I mean, yeah. I think that's why he's implicating himself. That's why he's telling the story. He's having people witness this story, even if they might be quote for the wrong reasons. Hmm. I think that he is allowing people to look at it and to have to critique themselves. Say if you're a white man, for example, mm-hmm. what is my role in this? And you know what, on the counter side of that, is that the possibly the best thing that can come out of this is that a bunch of white dudes go and see it and start to like feel some self-reflect. Yeah. Some, yeah. Icky conviction about like, Oh, am I actually a part of the problem? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. in the end, maybe, yeah. maybe if, if the indigenous people, if they say this movie's not for us, it's for white people. I don't think that's a bad thing. If it is nudging towards a, uh, a progress and an awareness on, on these type of issues. Yeah. Um, so final, final thing I just want to say near the end here is uh, one thing I'm excited about actually is, you know, David Grant who wrote killers of the flower moon, which it, if you don't want to see the movie, at least check out the book. 
Um, it's it's a bit different. I think the the movie's a fantastic uh, adaptation of it, but it's also it is is different and it has a different vibe. It's uh, I mean I know you use the term journalistic. The book is very journalistic. And David Grant, because I really liked it, it's ironic because recently I just started reading another David Grant book called The Wager about a, uh, this is about a, a ship in the, I think the 1700s, was it? Um, and it, it's a, it's another, I, I don't know if you want to call it true crime, but it's another historical mm. novel, so to speak. Uh, I just started reading it on audiobook and it's very fascinating so far, far and as of like my second day into finding into reading it, I found out that Scorsese is actually adapting this book into oh, a film for his wow. So I was like, all right. <laughs> he's How a, interesting. Yeah. I'm like, he's never, Scorsese's never done a Western before. And now I don't think he's ever done a, a pirate type movie before. Yeah. How <laughs> interesting. So, yes. Well, again, I will uh, link to all the different things that we've mentioned. Um, both the Twitter thread I was reading and the Deborah Jacobs one. And uh, yeah, definitely very thought provoking, lots of voices all around. And, and I want to finish by saying again, please take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. Um, And I by no means think that I am like the voice to listen to on this, but I think it's an interesting conversation to hopefully um, draw people into and, and hope you can research from yourself more too. But anyway, killers of the flower moon still playing in theaters can go see it now um and so it's an apple tv thing so it'll stream before too long too uh i will say if you are so inclined and uh can sit for three and a half hours it's a big screen experience for sure if uh if you've listened this far and haven't watched it yet um but anyway well thank you so much andrew for coming back on the show always a pleasure and um, i think this has been a great uh conversation and i'm enjoyed having you on Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much to Andrew for coming back on the show. It's never a short discussion when he's around, but it's always a good one. You can find links to a lot of the things we referenced in the show notes of this episode. Stay tuned. Award season is almost upon us, so I'm watching lots of good stuff. And I think this year I'm going to make uh, take a little bit more of a relaxed approach to the podcast schedule, meaning I'll probably do more than just one episode every two weeks and sort of release new episodes whenever I can about the films I'm seeing. So make sure to subscribe to the podcast. Keep an eye out for some of the very exciting episodes coming up. At this point, I have plans to discuss the new David Fincher film, The Killer. And beyond that, it's to be determined, but some things in mind for sure. So stay tuned. And with that, thank you so much for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years worth of episodes. You can hear all those in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. Learn more at appallingproductions.com. If you want to support Arthouse Garage, become a patron over at patreon.com slash arthousegarage. We'll find a link in the show notes. You can also buy an Arthouse Garage t-shirt at arthousegarage.com slash shop. If you want to support us without spending any money, leave a rating or review in your podcast app, and that is hugely helpful. Stay in the loop about Arthouse Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter, arthousegarage.com slash subscribe or you can email me directly andrew at arthousegarage.com and of course follow on social media you can find us on facebook twitter instagram and letterboxd just search at arthousegarage in all those places or find links in the show notes that will do it for this episode thank you again so much for listening and until next time keep it snob free